Uh, we looked at chapter 2, which talks about the coming of the Spirit to the church. And at the end of that uh, chapter, Luke tells us that these words, Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles, and all the believers were together and had everything in common. And over these few chapters, from chapter 3, basically to the end of chapter 5, um, possibly into chapter 6 as well. Um, Luke is giving us examples of those things and uh, showing us in more detail what they mean and um, how they worked and sometimes, as we've seen, how they didn't quite work. Um, but uh, that's a good thing to learn from as well. As I say, in chapter 3 of Acts, uh, that we do indeed see an apostolic sign. Um, Peter heals the cripple at the, uh, the gate beautiful in the temple. And uh, the stir that this causes gives Peter opportunity for his second address, his second uh, sermon, if you like, recorded there, uh, which actually in some ways is quite similar to the one in Acts 2, but it's different in that instead of talking about Jesus as the, as the king, the king in the line of David, uh, he talks about Jesus as being the prophet in the line of Moses. But again, the, um, the, the argument is much the same. You people didn't listen to the prophet in the line of Moses as you should have done, but now you have a second chance to, to repent and turn. And some of them did and some of them didn't. But uh, what I want to focus on here is um, what happens in chapter in 4 and chapter 5. Because as, you, as we read it, as you saw, the ruling council, the Sanhedrin, think that things are getting out of hand. And uh, they need, or they th believe they need to take um, John and Peter into custody and to stamp on this. And what's going to happen, or what happens, is that the Spirit intervenes. So that's basically what we're going to be looking at, the healing miracle we've already mentioned. The Spirit intervenes in this crisis in Acts 4. And then also uh, we'll look at this idea at the end of all things being held in common. So, oops, sorry. the Jews try to silence the message. Peter and John are called before the Jewish council. Will Peter know what to say? But the Holy Spirit comes to his rescue. We notice in verse 8 of chapter 4, Peter is filled here. The word, Greek word is pletho, which means to fill something up. Peter is filled up with the Holy Spirit. It doesn't say he was full of the Holy Spirit here. Um, we'll look at that next time, perhaps. Um, and it doesn't say that he was received or baptized the Holy Spirit, because we already know that it, that it happened already in Acts 2. So um, this is something specific and particular. At this time, this time of crisis, Peter receives a, a filling of the Holy Spirit. And um, perhaps what that reminds us of, indeed, are these words of Jesus himself, which we find in Luke chapter 12, 
Verse 11 and 12, I put it on the screen so you don't need to look it up. Jesus has said this, When you are brought before synagogues, rulers and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. So notice that Jesus said the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time. And that's exactly what had happened to Peter and John. They had indeed brought before the, before the rulers and authorities. And the Holy Spirit intervenes to meet that need as Jesus had promised. But it's worth, I think, looking at what Peter says. It's not that the Holy Spirit suddenly teaches Peter something he didn't know already. Um, as you might have thought, perhaps, if you just had that verse in Luke. But I don't think that's actually what is meant here. Um, Peter himself, doesn't he, in one of his letters, says, be prepared to give an account of the faith that's in you. Be prepared in advance, as it were. I think, actually, Jesus was getting at something slightly different here, and this is what this filling of the Holy Spirit means. It's not that Peter would suddenly know something he didn't, didn't know before, but rather that he would be empowered to speak it boldly. The Holy Spirit, as it were, would put those words that are already in his mind and you know, the defense that he might have started to put together and make it make sense, make it be declared faithfully and boldly. And that's, I suspect that's what's, well, I think more suspect, but I will suggest to you that's what indeed Luke wants us to understand from this that Jesus' promise was not so much that they, you know, they didn't need to be prepared, because we do need to be prepared, but rather that when the crunch comes, the, um, the Holy Spirit will give us that courage and clarity that we need. And being filled with the Spirit seems to be something like that. In verse 7, Peter's asked, By what power or by what name did you do this? You might have thought, actually, that the word for power there was the word authority, exousia in Greek. But actually it isn't. The word there, again, is the, the word dunamis, energy. What was the, the force, the energy, that you use in order to, to heal this man? See, the council simply cannot deny that something is at work. Um, but they're rather worried about what it is. And so they ask, um, by what power and by what name did you do it? And of course, in, in Jewish thought, name implies, it just doesn't mean, you know, who's, who was it? But name implies whose authority, whose power did you use to do this? Who was it were present, if not bodily, present as, as it were in spirit when this this event took place. And so Peter answers, in fact, he answers the second part of the question. He doesn't answer the first part explicitly. He says, the name is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. So the Spirit enables him to testify boldly to the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And then you notice Peter goes on to the offensive. He starts quoting Old Testament scriptures about the rejection of God's chosen one and scriptures about the um, rulers conspiring against the anointed king. 
And the council are actually astonished. If you look at verse 13, this is a, a fisherman. He's no rabbi, he's not a scribe. He's not a particularly educated person. And yet they're astonished by the wisdom and power of his spirit-empowered message. And what is it they saw? They did indeed see, it tells us in verse 13, that they had, verse 13, I'm sorry, they had been with Jesus. That's what the Spirit makes clear even to these unbelievers, that they had been with Jesus. What a difference. Once Peter had denied being with Jesus before an inoffensive servant girl, a girl who probably wouldn't have done anything about it anyway. But now, just these few weeks later, he's prepared to stand up in front of the whole council and say, I did this in the name of Jesus, and to say, I have been indeed with Jesus. That very council which had had Jesus executed. And look what happens. The council's pushed into a, a face-saving retreat, you notice, in verses 17 and 18. Um, they realize, verse 16, that they can't hush this up. Everybody's talking about it. They say, well, to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must more warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. They're trying to save face by this, this stage. But... Uh, Peter isn't even having that. He's not prepared to back down. He says, I'm sorry, I know you are the, the council, but I can't comply with your order. We must testify to what we've seen and heard. And then, what happens next? Luke tells us what happens next. They go back, they, they really don't, the council doesn't really have much choice but to release them. And Peter and John go back to wherever it is that the um, disciples are gathered. It doesn't seem to have been in the temple at this point because it seemed to have been in a, a separate building, a private building somewhere. It doesn't tell us where it is. But uh, they go back and uh, they tell the believers what's happened. And the question is how would the believers react? Are they going to say, well, you know, you sure that was wise, Peter? Um, you know, perhaps we could uh, just tone it down a bit, maybe, just to, you know, to, so they're not too aggressive about it. But no, they don't react like that at all. What they do is they react, first of all, with prayer. Verse 24. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. That was their reaction to the threat that has been put before them we're not told who led the prayer meeting but we are told what the prayer was and you'll notice in fact there are two parts to it first there's an appraisal of the situation um, via the relevant scriptures in verse 24 to 28 they remind themselves really who in their prayer who God is Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. 
You spoke through the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and his anointed one. Again, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. There's a certain irony in that, of course. David had been talking about the, uh, not to the people of Israel, but the, the, the heathen kings, the foreign kings. But um, they say, well, here, in fact, Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles have conspired with the people of Israel against the servant Jesus, whom you anointed. And they remind themselves again, as Peter had said on several occasions, they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. So it wasn't that it had gone wrong or you know, it got, all got out of control. They reminded themselves again, this was exactly what God had said would happen. And then they uh, turned to their actual intercession in verses 29 and 30. Now, Lord, consider the threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. You notice that there are two parts to the prayer. They pray for boldness in verse 29, and then they pray for signs, authenticating signs in verse 30. And their prayer is answered. But again, let me remind you that, well, yes, their prayer is answered. And there is a sign. I don't think one should say that there isn't a sign. There is a sign. The, the building is shaken, and that sign is there to remind them that the, the, the Lord is sovereign, the Lord does have power. And yet, again, it's, it's, it's similar, in fact, to in Acts 2. The sign when the Spirit comes is actually quite low-key. You know, it's not, no, no mountains involved, no fire on the mountain. The building is shaken, not the mountain is shaken. The building where they are is shaken. It's there to remind the people that God is sovereign, God comes in power. But it seems to me that Luke is telling us that's not really what God is focused on. He does answer that prayer for a sign. But the real answer to their prayer is the next bit, where he says, they, all, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke boldly. Notice what the result of the council's attempt to intimidate John and Peter was wasn't just Peter now that was filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke boldly. They all were. The whole church assembled there. The council had tried to marginalize the apostles' message and suppress the church, but the Spirit had other ideas. The result of this intimidation was that not just the apostle would speak out now, but everyone. And again, let me remind you that these people had received the Spirit before. This is not the initial baptism of the Spirit. These were believers who had already received the Spirit. This was a special filling and empowering so that they could speak the word boldly. And this idea of being filled with the Spirit, in, as we read through Acts, we see that being filled with the Spirit is usually associated, certainly it is here, with proclaiming the word. 
The one who stands up to proclaim the word should expect to be filled with the Spirit in in this sense. There's a new filling for a specific purpose. There's a comfort and there's an encouragement for God's people in this. I guess all of us wonder, don't we, how we'd stand up under persecution of various sorts. We do, of course, in the, in the West here. We have it pretty easy. And we read, perhaps, the tales of the martyrs. There's a, a book called Fox's Book of Martyrs. It's gone rather gone out of fashion now, I think. But I think it is worth reading, if you ever get the chance. It's a, a description of the martyrs in the, um, after the Reformation people who were burnt at the stake for their faith. And um, one of them actually, um, one of the stories says that the, the person who was going to be burnt had been speaking to his friends and said, if it's possible still to rejoice in the fire, will you put your arms out when the, when the, um, the, the rope has broken and so, you know, the rope has burnt so you, he could put his arms up. And indeed, the, the man did indeed put his arms up so that his friends who were watching could see that he was still able to rejoice in the flames. But we doubt that, don't we? I mean, we look at it and think, we're never going to be able to do that. And of course, in our own strength, we couldn't do that. But the Holy Spirit has promised that, well, Jesus has promised that the Holy Spirit will be there when we need him. And I think we should remember this, that if it does come to the stage where we are persecuted in the West and we think in terms of the um, brethren in other countries who are even now being persecuted we shouldn't forget that promise of Jesus that the Holy Spirit would come and that when the, um, the time comes that they would be filled and have that power to speak up boldly even under persecution but of course it is in the power of the Spirit, Holy Spirit not everyone some, some people have apparently cracked under the pressure. Not everyone is able to stand up. And so we need to remember that we need to remember those words of Jesus. You know, we shouldn't be afraid in that sense, but we should remember that it's the Holy Spirit who's going to enable us to speak if it comes to that. So the, the enemy has tried intimidation um, and that's failed. So he's going to try subversion now instead. Luke now gives us a warning. There's another side to the presence of the Spirit in the church. Just uh, in passing though, we might uh, note how Luke, the master storyteller, packs so much into uh, just a few verses. If we just look at those um, verses from 32 through to verse 36... He tells us the believers were in heart and mind. He's illustrating. Sorry, do I need to? Sorry, I'm going to the next slide in a minute, actually. Yeah. Um, the believers were in of one heart and mind. Um, he illustrates what he'd said in Acts 2 about them having all things in common and gives particular examples of how it worked, or at least how it should have worked. And also he manages to introduce to us Barnabas, who of course is going to be a major figure in what follows. Barnabas is an important character in Acts. Um, So Luke manages to pack all that just into these 
few verses. But here we showed Barnabas, which that's his nickname, he tells us, in verse uh, 36. His actual name was Joseph. He was a, a Levite, not a Levite born in Jerusalem, or, but he was from Cyprus. And the apostles gave him this nickname of Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. Delightful name to be given. Wouldn't it be nice to be somebody to say of you or me, oh, this guy is a son of encouragement or a daughter of encouragement. And the particular encouragement he uh, brings at this time is he is one of these people who happen to own a field that he, he doesn't need. And uh, so he sells it and he brings the money and it says, what it says, he laid it at the apostles' feet or put it at the apostles' feet. <coughs> it's not actually entirely clear here whether this is in the, within the assembly of the church and the apostles are sort of sitting at the front and they bring, the, bring it up, bring the money to the front and lay it down as it might do when we take an offering. Or perhaps it was done kind of in secret as we do here we don't take a collection plate round we have a box at the back if you want to put some money in it but uh, we don't make it public it's not entirely clear actually which is happening here um, it does seem that um, possibly it wasn't in the full assembly of the church and yet certainly the church heard about it and um, and there were some people there who other than the apostles so it's perhaps not entirely clear but it, it doesn't really matter too much but Barnabas brought this money, sold his field, brought this money and gave it to the apostles for the, the welfare of those in the church who were less well off. That's a very practical brand of encouragement that he brought. But there the enemy seizes opportunity. And so we read in chapter 5 of Ananias and Sapphira who also had a piece of property Go on to the next slide. And Luke's very careful to tell us that they both agreed to do this. Doesn't tell us whose idea it was. But they agreed to do this. And what did they do? They also sold a, a piece of property. Suggests it probably was a piece of land again. And they brought that to the apostles' feet as well but Peter seems to know instantly doesn't he that Ananias is lying we're not told how he knew it's possible I suppose that somebody shopped him but it seems more likely that Peter was given some spiritual insight We're not actually told what Ananias and his wife died of either. Presumably um, some heart failure brought on by the guilt or by the direct intervention of the spirit. Um, Greek, like most languages, has lots of words for dying. And the particular one that's used here is the one gave up the spirit or gave up the breath, which might suggest the same one that's used of the death of Jesus himself, in fact. Um, so it might have been some intervention of the spirit. But there's two things Peter's very clear about and Luke is very keen to tell us about. 
The first thing is what their crime was. And he tells us this in detail, doesn't he, in verses um, 3 to 3 and 4. It wasn't that they, they were obliged to sell this land. As I say, this is not communism where there's, uh, you know, everybody's obliged to hold the property in common. Some Christian groups have gone for that, but I, I think it's wrong, actually. It's, it's, it's not the biblical teaching. Um, they weren't obliged to hold their property in common or anything like that. As Peter says quite clearly, this is your property. You decided to sell it. And if you'd sold it, you could have said, well, you know, I need to keep half the money for my own family, but I'm going to give the rest to, uh, to the work of the church. That would have been perfectly acceptable. It was within your right to do that. It was your money. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? So if that wasn't the crime, their crime, what was their crime? Well, he tells us now, doesn't he? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. Their lie was a lie to the apostles, apparently. But their lie was a lie, really, to God. And what, what was it? What was the crime, really? What was their motive? Their motive was to appear more spiritual than they really were, wasn't, weren't they? wasn't it? Possibly they were jealous of the good reputation that Barnabas had, but basically their crime was fake spirituality. Or if you want to use the technical term, as Chris was reminding us this morning, hypocrisy. Pretending something that really, they really weren't. They were pretending to be spiritual, but in fact, they were pretending to be better than they really were. And Peter says, well, it's bad enough lying to the apostles and to the church. But actually, Ananias and Sapphira, actually, Christian believer, it's much worse than that. Because Peter calls it a lie to God. In fact, more specifically, in verse 3, he calls it a lie to the Holy Spirit. In verse 4, he calls it a lie to God. And then again in verse 9, when he's talking to Sapphira, he calls it testing the Spirit of the Lord. Hypocrisy, pretending to be what we're not, faking spirituality and holiness. And that in some ways is one of the deadliest sins of all. Pretending to lie, didn't Jesus say that every, every um, manner of sin will be uh, forgiven men, but not lying to the Holy Spirit, not blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Because to pretend to be what we're not is the deadliest sin of all. And yet every one of us is tempted to us. I'm sure we are. Surely all of us have fallen into it at one time or another. We pretend to be better than we really are. We pretend to, for some spiritual virtue that 
we really don't have or if we do have at least we don't have it to the extent that we pretend it we're all tempted to that if you get a chance read C.S. Lewis's book Screwtape Letters in um, it's the, the, the Screwtape Letters it's a weird sort of a book really it purports to be the the um, the letters from a senior devil to a junior devil and who's at work in trying to sabotage the uh, life of this young believer and he gives the devil he gives the junior devil advice in all sorts of different ways you can twist people into hypocrisy and one of them he, he actually says is um, you know if the, the, if your subject realizes that he's um, being a hypocrite and repents of it then you make sure you make him proud of repenting We can even parade our sinfulness sometimes, can't we, to prove to the church how humble we are. If the devil can get us unreal in any way he can, he's going to do just that. So it is worth reading the screw tape letters if you get the chance. He's going to use hypocrisy to tie us in knots and to suppress the spirit, which he couldn't do by intimidation. But there is uh, an opportunity to repent. At least Sapphira was given an opportunity to repent. She was asked again in verse um, 8, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? You would have thought she would have had time to have second thoughts, wouldn't you? Or maybe, you know, maybe he wasn't sure whether she'd been involved in it or not. But it certainly gave her a second chance to come clean. But she didn't, did she? Yes, she said, that's the price. And Peter says, how could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? And then she suffers the same fate as her husband. In what sense is this testing the spirit? It's suggesting, isn't it, that the spirit might be prepared to live with an untruth. But he is the spirit of truth. And of course all our churches consist entirely of sinners and as I said all of us I'm sure from time to time are hypocrites. We all do it to some extent. But the spirit shines on the lie. Gives us the opportunity to change. And I think we need to do that not just once but constantly. There is a need for, there is a right fear although John says that perfect love casts out fear Yet there is a right sort of fear as well. And we find that in, um, well we find it twice actually in this passage, but particularly in verse 11, great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. When they were intimidated from outside, they were bold. But when they realized the sin that could grow up in the church itself and what God was prepared to do about that, <laughs> Then they feared, and that was a right fear. And if a lie is tolerated within the church, what will happen? One of two things. The lie will drive out the spirit, and the church will die, just leaving the husk that remains. The structure might remain, but it will not truly be a church of the Lord Jesus Christ. If the spirit has gone, if the Lord no longer um, walks 
among the candlesticks for that church. Or if the lie does not drive out the spirit, then the spirit will drive out the lie and the liar. And he might not be quite as drastic as in this case, where the integrity of the newborn church is threatened. But if you look at Numbers chapter 32, verses 22 and 23, um, the context of this is the, the Israelites who were going to suffer, settle on the, the um, west, east side, so the east side of the Jordan, had, um, as the people were about to cross the Jordan, says, can we, can we leave our wives and children behind here? and um, we will go across with you. Um, But we read this in verse 22, and Joshua wants them to be clear that they must agree to conquer the land with the rest of the people. And he says, When the land is subdued before the Lord, you may return and be free from your obligation to the Lord and to Israel. And this land will be your possession before the Lord. But if you fail to do this, You will be sinning against the Lord and you may be sure that your sin will find you out. That's another one of these verses that's often quoted out of context but I think perhaps justifiably in this case because it's not just that particular sin that will find you out but any sin will find you out. Sometimes after many years we've seen in the news haven't we of those bishops and those church leaders who for many years after many years of hiding their sin eventually found it revealed and what damage must have been done in the church over those years so the Holy Spirit doesn't always act instantly as he did here but your sin the Spirit will find out your sins in the end So what can we uh, learn? What have we learned from these incidents? We see, we've learned first of all that the Spirit will come to us when we need him. He's promised, Jesus promised that he would and that we will be upheld under threat. But the Spirit comes to the church. When the Spirit comes to the church, there's a price and there's a risk involved because the Spirit is the Spirit of truth. He will not tolerate deception or foolishness. So let's finish with those words from Proverbs, well-known words again, from Proverbs 1, verse 7, which tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. If we want the Spirit to come to us, we must be prepared for his discipline and his shining our light, his light on what is wrong in our own lives but he will not test us beyond what we're able to bear, as as Scripture says. So I've chosen as our final hymn, a missionary hymn.